This morning, will you join me in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 24. And this is our last message in the Gospel of Luke. <laughs> is it clapping for joy that it's over, or just clapping because it's been so great? <laughs> yeah, and it, it, it's... Uh, it's been a great privilege and an honor for me uh, personally just to to share uh, this book verse by verse with the people of God. It's been really, really wonderful. Understand, this is the largest book in the New Testament. So you wonder, well, how come it took so long? Well, it is the largest, actually, in the New Testament writings. I did count up all the sermons just out of sheer curiosity, and I did find that this will be the 89th sermon from the Gospel according to Luke. <laughs> so 89 sermons, and then when I was halfway through the sermon, I thought, I should have made this too. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> it's just going to be one, <laughs> and we'll finish up uh, today. But it's just packed full of wonderful, wonderful things. And I thought too, uh, as we've gone through right, the birth of Jesus and the gospel of Luke, and, and his ministry, and his miracles, and his teaching, and, and his death, and his resurrection, and we'll see his ascension today, how much have we learned? Hmm? How much have we learned? And I thought at the same time, how much have we forgot already, right? <laughs> That's how it is. We've learned a lot, but I know I forgot a lot already. But go ahead and reread the Gospel of Luke, and you'll recall more and more as you go through it. And what I love about the Scripture, though, is when you tuck it away in your heart, and you, you've learned it in some measure, the Holy Spirit will grab a hold of that and remind you. That's what the Holy Spirit does so often, is he reminds us of the words of Jesus. He said that he would do that. So there's times when you're going to need some of this, and the Spirit of God will be like, well, here you go. Remember this? Yes, Lord, thank you. Right? So it's there. The Lord will use it. But go back and read and reread. And it's a life of study, a life of studying the Bible, that's for sure. Now, I'm not much on titles for the sermons. Occasionally, you'll notice in the bulletin, uh, that I do have a sermon title, um, sometimes just uh, what's happening in there. But today, uh, I do have a title that I kind of like. I'll mention it. It is called The Ascended Yet Ever-Present Savior. The name of the message, The Ascended. Okay, He's going to the right hand of the Father, but He's always with us. Right? Though He ascended, He's ever-present through the gift of His Holy Spirit. Well, this morning, we're going to see... Um, where we left off last week. Remember the road to Emmaus? That's where the disciples, well, two of the disciples, maybe a husband and wife, we're not even really sure. We know one of their name, Cleopas, but they were going to Emmaus and they met Jesus on the road, if you recall. But he kept them from recognizing who he was. And then they were saddened and sorrowed to the death of Jesus. And he said, oh, how foolish you are. And then he explained to them, early from Genesis to Malachi, he gave them the greatest Bible study that we've never heard all about how the scripture spoke about him and his death and resurrection, and oh, how their hearts begin to burn inside them, remember? And then they sat down and ate uh, supper with the Lord. He broke the bread, and all of a sudden, boom, they could see that it was Jesus. But then he disappeared from their sight, but in joy, they got up and boogied seven miles back to Jerusalem to tell the apostles, we've seen the Lord, but they burst in the door. And then who told them first? They didn't get to say it first, actually. The, the apostles are like, ah, we've seen Jesus. And he appeared to, to Simon Peter. And they're like, oh, well, we just saw him seven miles back. And they're talking about these very things. And that's where we leave off in our passage today with one more resurrection appearance and then the ascension of our beloved Savior. So if you'll stand with me out of reverence, for God's holy word, our last message from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, starting verse 36. And we read, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said, Peace be with you. 
And they were startled and frightened, thinking that they saw a ghost. And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and ate it in their presence. And he said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me according uh, in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. And he told them, This is what is written, The Christ will suffer and raise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. And when he led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. And then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. Hmm. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, verse 36, While they were still talking about this, Jesus uh, himself stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Hmm. So again, when did this happen? Well, they're still talking about this. Well, the two had just got back from Emmaus, seven miles. It's getting kind of late at night now. It's dark. And they just came in. They just said they had seen Jesus. And they had said, oh, Peter saw him as well. So they're talking about this. So this is the same night. It's Sunday night. It's practically, you know, according to the Jewish calendar, it would be uh, uh, Monday morning. And they're talking about this. And suddenly, Jesus stands in their midst. Hmm. According to the Gospel of John, it tells us in this parallel passage that the doors were locked for fear of the Jews. They were afraid. Hey, the, Jew, the Jewish leaders arrested Jesus. They might come and arrest us, so they arrested. I'm sorry, they, 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 uh, they locked the doors so they might not get arrested. A little, little buffer zone there. Hmm. And then suddenly, Jesus appears, <laughs> though the doors are locked, and speaks to them. Hmm. How did Jesus do that? Remember we talked about this last week. That Jesus in the resurrected body was totally different, but yet totally the same. It's this amazing thing when we try to contemplate this. He, was a, he is God in the flesh, but wrapped in flesh and blood. right? Just mortal flesh like us, but yet totally God. But in the new resurrected body, it's eternal, it's glorious, and it is not subject to the same laws of time and space that his previous body was subject to. Hmm. How did Jesus get out of the tomb? Well, the angel didn't roll away the stone to let him out, remember. It rolled away the stone to let everybody know Jesus was already gone. So that means he just went, whoop, right to the grave. The grave closed. They were still all wrapped up, just kind of deflated because he went right through them. And we see here the doors were locked. And he just came right through the doors. And when he was with those on the road to Emmaus and he ate with them, then he disappeared. Well, we cannot do that in our normal mortal bodies. With a new glorified risen body, it's not subject to the same laws of time and space. So we see that being played out, and that's why Jesus seems to appear and disappear in our, in our passages. 
A little homework for you this week, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Write that one down for your notes. Read chapter 15, and it's all about the resurrected body. Now, it's not going to answer all your questions, <laughs> but it's going to help you out a little bit to know about the new resurrected body that we will have, which is a pattern of the one that Jesus has. Let me read to you from Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3, verse 20, says, But our citizenship is in heaven. Right? When you give your life to Christ, you're not a citizen of earth any longer. You're a citizen of heaven. It says, We eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, listen, will transform our lowly bodies. These are lowly bodies, guys, just earthly mortal bodies that are dying. Will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Mm. So we get new bodies. I've been mentioning that lately at the resurrection of Jesus, but it's a glorious and wonderful truth that we have to understand. So that means that in eternity, we will not be existing in a disembodied spirit. People have very strange thoughts about heaven. We're just floating around as little spirits, right, on, on clouds, playing harps. And I don't know where'd that come from. I just think of the far side or something when I think of that. But anyway, somebody invented these things, but that's not in the Bible. We will not be spending eternity in a disembodied spirit. It means a spirit without a body. No, no, we will actually have a physical body, yet it will be glorified and perfect and immortal. Hmm. Now, I guess there is a few moments that you will spend without your body, depending, depending. So if you die tomorrow, your body goes to the grave. But your spirit goes to Jesus. If you love Jesus, that's where it goes, right? If you don't love Jesus, well, then it goes to Sheol, the place of the dead, and the flames waiting for judgment. Hmm. It's not pretty. We don't want that. But if you love Jesus, your spirit will go to be with Christ. Like the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that thief right now, and our loved ones that have died loving Christ, they are living in a state of disembodied mint. They're disembodied spirits currently. In the presence of Jesus, because their body's in the grave. But the Bible tells, so it's a short time. It'll still be great, but it'll be a short time because then when Jesus raptures the church, it says the dead in Christ will rise. So then those who are just spirits right now that have gone before us, their bodies will be risen from the dead, new, glorified, eternal, and their spirits will be joined together. And what will happen if you and I are alive at that moment? Hmm, we don't get to die. Woohoo! We just get changed. In an instant, in a flash, in a twinkling of an eye, we get brand new bodies. So, come Lord Jesus. <laughs> It'd be fun to be that generation, right? That never had to die. That's a little bit of a boast. Hmm. Not that you'd be boasting in heaven, but you know. You guys are the guys who never had to die. That's super cool. <laughs> I like that. But who knows? We may die. So Jesus, he suddenly appears hmm, with this new glorified body. And what does he say? He says, peace be with you. I love that greeting. And it's the typical Jewish greeting that they would say in Hebrew, the shalom. When they come and they meet, it's shalom. It's peace to you. And when we leave, it's shalom, peace go with you, right? It's beautiful. I don't know why we as the, the, the Protestant church and Christian church, you know, how, how come we haven't really picked that up exactly? I don't know. Maybe they did in the early days of the church. But it's a beautiful thing. Now, the New Testament was not written in Hebrew, so I went to the original language, which is Greek, and I looked up that word there for peace, and it is the word irene. I'm probably not saying that right at all, but it's, uh, it's all Greek to me. So anyway, irene, that's the best I got. 
But it, like, the definition of it was this. It describes a harmonious relationship between men, a harmonious relationship between nations, a harmonious relationship between friends, but most importantly, a harmonious relationship between God and man. Hmm. That's what we want. It's about rest and contentment, it said, between us and God. Shalom, irene, peace be with you. And the Bible tells us the only true peace that we can ever have, the true rest and contentment between us and God, comes through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1 says that though, now that you have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We got the shalom, we got the irene, the, the contentment and the rest because the, the sins have been washed away. That's what kept us at odds with God and we, we were his enemies. But then when he washes all our sins away, we're adopted as children. And there's peace between us and God. So maybe we should use the peace be with you a little more in the church. <laughs> I love it. And really in the mouth of Jesus, as he says this, he says to them, salvation. Right? Salvation, peace between you and the Father through me. Yeah, it's beautiful. Beautiful. Now, the disciples here are all stirred up, so they also need that peace in their hearts because they're all going to be very emotional, as we're going to see here in a moment. Verse 37, they were startled, right? Because he just appeared. They were startled and they were frightened, thinking that they saw a ghost. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Hmm. These are the apostles of Christ. These, this is the A-team, right? <laughs> These are the men with the most faith. These are the ones who brought the, the gospel to the world and, and changed the world, and we're here today because of the teachings of these men. But how, at this point, are they handling the resurrection of Jesus? Not really well, right? <laughs> what does it say here? It says they were scared, and they were troubled, and the doubts were rising in their mind. They were doubting Jesus. There he is, right in front of them, risen from the dead, and they're all confused and struggling and doubting and fearful and troubled. What interesting creatures humans are, huh? Aren't we fascinating? <laughs> I think the angels look down and go, oh, what are they doing, right? That's just interesting, and they don't understand. They're not quite like us. How frail we are and how much we need God all the time ruling and reigning in our life. Hmm. Because back in verse 34, remember a few minutes ago, they were all excited. Jesus is risen from the dead. We just ate dinner with him. He appeared to, to Peter. And now they're afraid. And they're scared. They think he's a ghost. And they're doubting if it's even Jesus or if he's really alive. Oh, how we can oscillate and change, right? Back and forth. They're the resurrection. Woohoo! And there he is. Oh, I don't know if he's real. The apostles were real people just like us. And I take comfort in that, right? Because we're kind of like this sometimes. <laughs> One moment we're like, yeah. Next moment we're like, I don't know. <laughs> so I'm comforted by the, re the realness of these men. I love that the, the Bible just says it like it is, right? And if, if all their problems and struggles are just, there it is. 
Right? If you were making all this stuff up, you'd be like, oh no, we believed instantly and it was wonderful. And <laughs> but they just the Bible says it like it is. It doesn't doesn't sugarcoat its heroes. It tells us that Peter denied Jesus three times, right? Hmm. Verse 37, they were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. Hmm. But I think, you know, if, if they're just regular people like us, hmm, and the Lord was patient with them, isn't he patient with us? He helps us. So they're scared. They think they saw a ghost. Well, why would they think he's a ghost? That seems kind of odd. Well, he did appear when the doors were locked. My mortal body cannot go through locked doors. It doesn't work. Maybe, But I'm, I'm almost wondering if I'm giving him too much credit for that one, honestly, because they're all kind of, right now. So I'm not sure they've thought that far ahead, like, wait, the doors are locked. How do you get here? He must be a ghost. Maybe they're thinking that. I don't know. But they're definitely scared, and they don't think he's a real a physical body. Hmm. They have no idea what the new resurrected body is capable of, not bound by time and space. And it says they were troubled and doubts were raising in their minds. You know, the resurrection of Jesus can be difficult to grasp for some. And we might oscillate and think, oh, I don't know, is that a real thing or not? Well, you know what, that's okay if you struggle with these things because the A-team was struggling with these things. Because honestly, resurrection isn't normal, right? It doesn't really happen <laughs> unless you're the Son of God. Hmm. Of course, Jesus wasn't really normal. Well, he was. He was totally man, but yet totally God, so therefore he wasn't always perfectly normal. All the glorious supernatural things he did. But it was going to take them a few moments to grasp this reality that he was alive. Do you struggle? Do you have doubts? Do you have fears? Do you doubt Jesus sometime? I just want to say, if you do, it's okay. Don't lose heart. But do what the disciples did. Just keep hanging out with Jesus. Because okay? notice, if they had all ran screaming from the house, ah, ran out, <laughs> that would be a whole different story, wouldn't it? They, they wouldn't develop faith. They just kept hanging out in the midst of their fears, in the midst of their doubts, in the midst of their struggles, and Jesus began to help them. Right? That's what the rest of the passage is really about, Jesus helping them to understand. So don't freak out, because this is what the devil will do. If you're starting to doubt Jesus, he'll say, oh, you're not a real Christian, you doubt Jesus. Just throw it all, throw the towel in, you give it up, right? But the Bible says, no, if you doubt, if you struggle, just keep hanging out with Jesus and he will take away your fears and your doubts and he will convince you he's alive and real. So even in your struggles, just keep into the word of God. Keep reading, keep praying, keep going to church, keep trusting and faith will arise. Faith will arise. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. Jesus had just told them not long before this. Just keep trusting, hey? And faith will arise. Yeah. That's really what faith is. It's just choosing to believe. Choosing to have faith and believe what God says. Verse 39. Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me. I like it. It is I myself. It's me. It's Jesus. Touch me and see a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. So the Lord is beginning to settle their fears and their doubts as they just keep hanging out with Jesus. Check it out. Look, touch, feel, see I'm alive. I'm risen from the dead. I'm not just a, a spirit. I'm not a ghost floating around here. 
It's important that we understand that Jesus bodily rose from the dead because some of the cults who deny the deity of Jesus say he's a created being. That's not the case at all. He is God, the Son. In fact, the creator of all things. But some of the cults who take away his deity, they will also love to take away the bodily resurrection. And they'll say it was a spiritual, spiritual resurrection. No body. And you think, well, does that matter or not? Well, it does. Because, you know what? Anybody can have a spiritual resurrection. How are you going to prove that? Right? <laughs> oh, Buddha had a spiritual resurrection. Not that they say that. But how would we know? I don't know. Did he? Okay, whatever. But if you raise from the dead, there's nobody in the grave. <laughs> and you can touch and you can talk and you know that he's real. It's not some ethereal, weird kind of, I don't know, and understand thing. It's real. It's tangible. He truly, what he said, had flesh and bones. Now, I don't want to make too much of this, but I am kind of curious. Flesh and bones. Hmm. Because there's a passage that says, and we might read it here in a moment, but it says that flesh and blood does not inherit the kingdom of God. But Jesus said he was flesh and bones. Hmm. Now, I don't know, maybe it's no big deal at all. But he didn't say blood. And I wonder, in the book of Leviticus, it tells us the life of the creature is in the blood. Thus the slaying and the pouring out, the giving of the life. But I wonder, maybe we will, I mean, this is just thoughts. I don't know. Just don't quote me on this, necessarily. But I'm wondering if maybe in heaven we have this new glorified everlasting body, but there's no blood running through our veins. What's going to run through? I'm wondering if it isn't the Holy Spirit himself. Hmm. The Spirit of God coursing through us, the life of the creature, is now intertwined with the life of its creator in a, in a greater, more glorious sense for all eternity. So I don't know, just a thought, just a wild thought there. But anyway, we do see that Jesus' body, though, is physical. You can touch it. It'll last forever, though. It's not perishable. Hmm. It'll last forever. Not subject to the laws of time and space. Um, let, me, let me read to you from 1 Corinthians uh, 15. 1 Corinthians 15, starting verse 49, there for your notes. It says, Just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, that is Adam, in this mortal body, so we shall bear the likeness of the man from heaven, which is Jesus, in a new glorified body. He says, I declare to you, brothers, that all... That flesh and blood, there's the passage, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, that means die, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in a twinkling of an eye, and I referred to that scripture earlier, at the last trumpet, that's the, the, the time Jesus comes to take his church, the rapture. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Hmm. The new body will be perfectly suited for a new heaven and a new earth. Think about this body we have now. It's quite suited to this earth. Gravity, space, and time. We wear out. All things seem to wear out, and there's a cycle you know, that seems to happen. So our bodies are built for this world. But the new immortal body will be built specifically to inhabit a new world, a new earth. In fact, a new universe. Hmm. The new body, it's going to last forever. But there's something special, I think, about the new body, too. Do you remember Moses in the Old Testament when he asked God, I want to see your glory? And God's like, no, you don't get to see my glory. Because if you saw all of me, right? If you saw my face, you saw my glory, what would happen? You're going to die. 
The glory of God would just fizzle you right out. <laughs> You'd be dead. Hmm. So he let him see a little glimpse of him as he passed by. But I'm thinking this new eternal glorified body will be able to bask <laughs> in the eternal glory of God, where this one would just fizzle out and die. So I think there's such a need for the new body. First, it has to live forever, but then it has to also handle the glory in the presence of God. What will that be like? All the fullness of God himself. And then that new universe that he's going to make with that new body, designed for that. Let me read to you from Revelation chapter 21, one of my favorite verses of all the Bible. Revelation 21, verse 1, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Hmm. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. So the universe is going to pass away. And he's going to remake a brand new, new heavens, new earth, a new universe that will spend with uh, him in a new body. What will that be like? I think there's multiple dimensions. We live in a three-dimensional world. We talked about this a little bit at Bible study with the, with the guys yesterday. We have length, we have height, and we have depth in a three-dimensional world. But what if, I feel like heaven is in that fourth dimension or the fifth dimension, or I don't know, where there's so much more that we can't even contemplate, but we'll enter into that. That's why we need a new body to exist in that greater dimension, in the greater reality, in a new heaven, a new earth. And he goes on, verse 2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. We get a new city to live in with God. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men. Mm, well, we need that new body then. And he will live with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he'll wipe every tear from their eyes, and there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. A whole new universe! He created the universe at one time in his power and his might. He's going to scrub it all and build a whole new universe, a whole new reality. And he who was seated on the throne, verse 5, said, I am making everything new. Heaven is not a mystical, strange, floating around as a spirit kind of a place. Heaven is a physical, tangible reality of a new universe and a new body in the presence of our glorious God. Mm. And that's all I can explain to you. <laughs> I wish I could tell you more details. There might be a few more details here and there. In fact, I got another detail I'm going to spill here in a minute. It's pretty awesome. But we don't have these weird thoughts about heaven. Right? Heaven is with God in a recreated universe, in a recreated glorified body. Hmm. Wow. Blessed be Jesus. Verse 40. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Why would he do that? Hmm. Apparently he still had the scars from the nails from the crucifixion in his hands and in his feet. And we think how curious. Because he's in a new glorified resurrected body. Why does he still have the scars? Well, I think it's on purpose. But I don't think for one second you and I are going to have any scars on our new glorified bodies. No, no, no. We're, we're going to look for them. I'll look for the end of my finger and go, oh, look, I got my finger back right there. You know, you look for that scar over here from that surgery and you go, oh, it's not there, right? 
<laughs> I don't think for one second I'll see it would serve any purpose for there to be an overlap of the old corrupt body into the new and glorified everlasting body. I don't, that doesn't make any sense. But why would Jesus still contain the scars from the cross, though? Well, I think it has to be for that eternal reminder. The, ter- the eternal reminder of the love of God and the price of heaven, right? the price of our salvation. And I just picture us strolling along <laughs> the river of life, talking with Jesus. And we look over there and we see him. And he's waving. He, he maybe talks like me and he waves his hand all the time. I don't know. And we see the scars and we just adore him, right? And we praise him and we worship him and it will remind us forever and ever of the love and the sacrifice of the Savior. Thank you, Lord. Hmm. Verse 41. And while they were, I love it. And while they still did not believe it because of what? Joy and amazement, (laughs) he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? Isn't that interesting? They didn't believe because of joy and amazement. And you think, is that, does that work? How is that? That seems like a bit of a paradox. How can, we, how can we have those two things going on at the same time? But are we not like that often, quite paradoxical as human beings? Can we not have two emotions running through us at the same time? Of course we can't. Uh, one moment we're one way and we're mixed with another feeling and another emotion. And such is the human condition. That's what we're seeing here. I think that what we're seeing with the apostles is total emotional overload. Their lives have been shattered. All their hope was gone at the death of Jesus, and there he is, peace be with you. And like, oh, I believe because I see it, but I don't think it could be true. But it's amazing and wonderful, right? They're all swirling around. It's like, it's just too good to be true. But look, there he is. <laughs> and the smile can't come off my face, but I don't know. Is it really true? Maybe he's a ghost. I don't understand. It's too wonderful. Huh? We can relate to these things. (laughs) When you've gone from the depths of sorrow to great joys, right? Hmm. They're trying to work it out. I think the emotions are ahead of the intellect here at this moment. And what does he say, verse verse 41? Uh, He asked them, uh, do you have anything here to eat? Huh. They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and he ate it in their presence. Well, was Jesus hungry from all his appearing and reappearing? Really wears a guy out? No. (laughs) He's not hungry. What's going on here? I think he's just reassuring him, uh, the disciples, that he's real. Because ghosts don't sit down and have dinner with you. They don't all have some fish and munch it down. They don't do that. He's just saying, I am tangible. I'm real. You can touch me. I'm eating with you. I'm not a figment of your imagination. I'm real. So this is what I picture. I picture Jesus sitting on a chair. He asks for the fish, and somebody gets a little piece of broiled fish, and they give it to him. And I picture everybody else standing, looking down with their eyes wide, and their mouths kind of half open, like, you know, like, this isn't real. And there's Jesus, just happy as a clam, just munching on his little piece of broiled fish. <laughs> and I picture the Lord just, mmm, he's enjoying it. And he's like, oh, this is, you caught this this morning. It's good. It's fresh. It's my favorite tilapia out of the, the Sea of Galilee, or wherever it came from. <laughs> And they're just looking with their mouths open. And I picture one of them just, he can't control himself. He just reaches out and touches his shoulder. You're real. You're really here. 
And then I picture him with one hand he's eating, the other hand he picks it up like this and he just holds it like this, doesn't look at it, and they just grab it. Two or three of them grab a hold of the hand. And one drops to the feet and clings to the ankles and the feet of Jesus, and the other to the other feet, and the tears are falling and the emotions are there. Joy and amazement and faith is starting to take root. Seems too good to be true. Hmm. And before we go into verse 44, I want to point something out. In the new glorified resurrected body that we'll spend eternity in, we're going to eat food. And all God's people said, we're going to have a pollock in a minute, but it won't compare to the treats of heaven. Eating is slightly problematic, the sight of heaven. Have you noticed that? Like, really, it's good, it's fun, but, you know, you do it wrong and you gain too much weight or you got diabetes or you got a heart attack or, you you know, it's just a problem. My blood pressure is high because of the salt or the, you know, it just, it, we love it. It's a treat, but it's problematic. But in a new body, there'll be more, no more problems, right? And the Bible talks of feasting with Jesus and the saints, right? The wedding feast. Huh. What, will that, what will the food in heaven taste like? With another whole reality, old things have passed away. It's not even the same. We have new tastes <laughs> and flavors. I don't know. It's going to be awesome. Just wanted to point that out. Verse 44, and he said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. And then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. Hmm. What did Jesus do here? He took them back to the Bible. Just like last week, the two on the road to Emmaus. He kept his presence from them, but what did he do? He took them to the Bible first and explained to them he had to suffer and die and raise from the dead. And then they could believe. That's what he's doing here. This is uh, the law of Moses. That's the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible that Moses wrote. The prophets, uh, all their wonderful words. So many of, it, uh, of them spoke about Jesus. And he throws the Psalms in there. The Psalms have all kinds of Psalms about Jesus, right? He's really referring to the Old Testament as a whole. Had to speak about him. Hmm. I think... The greatest evidence that he's giving to them that Jesus, that he rose from the dead and he's alive and he died for their sins, the greatest evidence he gives them is the very fact that the Bible said it was true. Huh, isn't that fascinating? <laughs> More than the hands and the touching. Because did the, the, the sight of Christ truly convince them? Well, they're working on it, but no. They still do not believe because of joy and amazement. So it's not, it's not it's fully all they need for faith. Though it certainly helps. But once again, we see the confidence of heaven is in the scriptures. Jesus believed the Bible, and so should we. Jesus didn't do anything contrary to the scripture, and nor should we. Where does faith come from? From seeing? Well, it didn't totally work for these guys. And how many people saw Jesus in those days before he died? How many of those people saw him raise the dead? heal the sick, and they still didn't believe. They saw! They saw the miracles of Jesus, and they didn't even believe. Some did. So it's not that seeing is absolutely believing. Hmm. 
The Bible says we're supposed to walk by faith and not by sight. In fact, that's what faith is, not sight. One day our faith will become sight. Did you know there's going to be a couple things that are not in heaven? One of them is faith. I know that sounds weird. There's no faith in heaven? No, because faith is being sure of what we hope for and confident in what we do not see. Huh, but we're going to see it, so there'll be no faith. Fascinating. But we need it now. We need it now. But why do we have faith that Jesus rose from the dead? Is it because we've seen him? No, it's because the Bible says so, right? And then when you trust him, his spirit comes and dwells in you and changes you. And you experience and live in relationship with the risen Savior. But it starts off with believing the Bible. We've talked about this over the last few weeks. Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing the word of God or the message of Jesus, as the NIV says. So fascinating. He brings them to the Bible to prove he's alive and real. Now, it's important that we understand that Jesus died according to the scriptures for our sins and rose from the dead to give us life. For us and for the apostles, because the uh, cross by itself is just death and torture and pain, right? If you think back when Mel Gibson did his movie, The Passion of the Christ, many of us saw it. And many of us saw it, though, interpreted through the lens of the Bible. And we understood he was dying for our sins. And it meant a lot to us, right? But if you were somebody, or I told about a, a friend I brought to ch- uh, from church over there one time to the movie, and, and he didn't get it. He was angry at God for killing Jesus. He just, he just didn't get it at all. I think a whole lot of people sadly went to that and saw murder and saw torture and pain and had no understanding of what that meant because the Bible wasn't there to interpret it for them. Hmm. So the cross without the scripture is only suffering, but the scripture, cross with scripture explaining and giving it context is our salvation for Jesus is dying for our sins. He was pierced for our transgressions. Hmm. And the punishment that brought us peace, shalom, hmm, was upon him, that punishment. So the scriptures tell us what the cross and the resurrection means. So important. And the disciples didn't understand. All they saw was death and torture. But when they heard it from the Bible, they say, oh, now we understand. I can preach that for the rest of my life. Hmm. Verse 45. And then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. I got that highlighted in my Bible. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, between the Bible and the seeing and, the, and Jesus there, They still had trouble. So it was the supernatural hand of Jesus that opened up their minds and they could say, I understand the Bible. And the Bible talks about things that are only spiritually discerned. Because you just grab that guy walking down the street right now and you, you give him the Bible. Well, he might get it, but oftentimes they don't, right? How many people have come to church and gone, oh, okay, that's weird, and walked out and then did nothing for them? How many people have read the Bible and go, okay, whatever? And it doesn't change and transform them. Why? Because their minds are closed to the scriptures. They, they can't understand. They cannot see. They're, they're blind. The devil's blinding them. The Bible tells us that happens. So what we need is the work of Christ to open the mind so they can understand. Do you remember when the Bible first made sense to you? Hmm. I remember reading the Bible going, I don't understand. Of course, I was reading King James. That might have been part of it. 
But I do remember light bulbs going on like, bing, oh, thank you, Lord. I begin to understand this. I begin to understand that. And light bulbs still go on daily, right? As we keep reading and keep seeking God. But it's the hand of Jesus doing this work of grace in our lives. Interesting, in John chapter 20, the parallel passage to this, it doesn't say that Jesus opened their minds so they could understand the scripture. It says something very curious. It says that Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. You guys ever remember that passage? And you're like, okay, I don't know what that means. <laughs> the breath of God came out of Jesus upon them in the room and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. Well, we don't understand because 50 days later on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God came, the breath of God came and filled them and empowered them. So what's Jesus doing there? Well, we often think then, okay, that must just be a precursor. He's letting you, I'm letting you know it's coming, the breath of God. But I wonder if there wasn't something more significant happening there. Because this is the breath of Jesus, the breath of God. And maybe as he breathed out upon them, that the Spirit of God came, in a sense, and opened their minds. The places where they were dull and didn't grasp it. And then they went, oh, I see Jesus in the Scripture. I understand now. And then they really understood more and more when the Spirit came in his fullness. So we want the breath of Jesus on us when we read the Bible. So when you go to church every Sunday, say, Lord, we're going to church. Help us to understand the scriptures. Mm. Pray that with your kids on the way. That's why I kind of pray these stuff at the beginning of the message. When you open the Bible during the week, say, Jesus, teach me the Bible. I want to hear from you, Lord. We need the hand of Christ opening our minds. And when you bring your friend to church, pray for them that their minds will open. And when you witness to them, pray for them, that the Spirit of God would fall on them, breathe on them, and open their minds so they could understand to be saved. Verse 46, And he told them, this is what is written, the Christ will suffer and raise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all generations, all nations, and generations too, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Where is the message of Jesus supposed to go? Just around town? Hmm. To all nations, right? All nations. Now, it has to go around town because this is where we live. And our town needs it, right? But also, that's why we want to support missionary work. And we, we, the gospel has to go all over the world. Hmm. That's my brother. He was teaching the Bible in Africa for three years. Right? It's got to go. Why? Because God loves everybody and wants them all to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. And notice what's going to be specifically preached. He said, repentance and forgiveness of sins. Hmm. That's part of the, the core of the gospel. To, for somebody to really be saved and have their sins forgiven, they have to turn away. They have to repent. Hmm. So if the church doesn't preach repentance, can people really be forgiven? You know, Because we have to have a change of life. You have to say, I'm going to leave my sinful thoughts behind. I'm going to leave my sinful behaviors and actions and desires. I'm going to leave them over here, and I'm going to run to the ways of Jesus and obey him. Now, of course, repentance is a lifelong thing. We don't do that perfectly. But we have to draw a line in the sand and say, I'm done with my old life. Here I come, Jesus. I want to know you and love you. And we're up and down. We struggle. We keep repenting. But we have to make that choice. And then the Lord washes all our sins away. 
But the problem is, I think that sometimes people in the church, they don't understand, and they want their sins forgiven, but they don't repent. Therefore, they keep living the old sinful life. But if you keep living that old sinful life, can you really be forgiven? Can you really be saved if you didn't change and you really weren't born again, right? So repentance is key, and God will help us. Verse 49, And I'm going to send you what my Father has promised. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Well, what did God the Father promise to send? His beloved Holy Spirit, right? The blessed Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. And we don't understand the Holy Spirit, really. We get the Father a little bit, we get the Son, and then there's the wonderful Holy Spirit. But Jesus said, I'm leaving. And that's why this message is called the Ascended and yet Ever-Present Savior. Jesus said, it's actually better that I go, because if I go, then the Spirit will come, and the Spirit of Jesus will come and live in each individual who calls on the name of Christ, and Jesus will live with each one of us. 24-7, because if Jesus in a bodily form on earth, there'd only be one of him. Now, what's it going to be like when he returns, when we all have new bodies? I don't know. It's a whole new reality, but we're still going to all have all of Jesus all the time, and I don't know how that's going to work. But we have him now through the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he says, you'll be clothed with what on high? From on high? What's the word? Power. Power. The kingdom of heaven is about power. It's about God dwelling within us, transforming us, and then we have power to live a holy and righteous life that he called us to live. But not on our own strength, but Christ in us, working, empowering. And the Bible says, the greater is he that is in you, the Holy Spirit, than he that is in the world, the devil. So we don't have to be afraid because we got Jesus. We got power to be witnesses. Also, that's part of it, to be a witness for Christ. Don't be afraid about what people are going to say if you're a Christian and tell them about Jesus. Don't be afraid because you got power. You got the Spirit of Christ living in you 24-7. And you got power to live for Jesus in this world and overcome the schemes and the lies and the temptations of the devil. You're going to get through it because you got power through the Spirit of Jesus living in you. We forget that. The devil lies and we get all weak and wobbly. Live in the power. It's a gift from God the Father. Now we come to the last few verses, which is called the Ascension. Jesus descended, that means coming down to earth, giving his life for us, rose from the dead, and now he's ascending, going up into heaven to be at the right hand of God the Father. It almost looks like, if we just kept on reading, that Jesus ascended to heaven on the very same day that he rose from the dead. It kind of looks like that in the Gospel of Luke, but he's, he's condensing it. What's the sequel to the Gospel of Luke? Anybody know? The Book of Acts. That's the sequel, right? When you read the first, I encourage you to do that at home, because uh, he recounts the ascension of Christ, and he gives some other details. We're going to refer to some of those in a moment. But it tells us there in the Book of Acts, that Jesus didn't uh, leave right away. In fact, it took him 40 days, hmm, 40 days of appearances. And I just love that. 
Because it's not like he just rose from the dead, had dinner with him, and whoop, he's gone, right? <laughs> but 40 days, how many people did he talk to? How many people did he see? Boy, there'd be books and books just written about those moments and experiences. So 40 days of appearances, convincing them that he's totally alive. But did you know that this was the last thing Jesus did to prove that he was the Son of God before he left? And when you think of proof that Jesus is the Son of God, do you think of the ascension? I don't. I wouldn't have put it on the list until I began to think about it this week. Normally you think, okay, if Jesus is the Son of God, what are some of the proofs? How about like uh, the virgin birth? I try pulling that off, unless you're the Son of God, right? And then his awesome teachings from heaven, all the miracles and the, the glorious things that he did, and of course his resurrection from the dead, is that's the tippy top. That's really proven you're the Son of God. Raise yourself from the dead. Try that, Buddha, right? It doesn't work. Unless you're the Son of God. All the Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled in Christ, magnificent, wonderful proof. And the final proof is Jesus ascending into heaven right before their very eyes. How's that proof? Because I can't do that. My mortal body is not going up to heaven. If it could, I'd just say, see you guys. I'm going to go on. <laughs> but I can't. But Jesus did. And that was the final miraculous thing to convince the apostles he's the Son of God. Absolutely, right? So there he goes, up to heaven. Verse 50. And when he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, blessing them he left them and was taken up into heaven. I wish there was more details in that, honestly. I guess that's all we need. <laughs> hmm. I'd like to know, was the sun shining? Was the wind blowing? <laughs> you know, what exactly did he look like as he went up? What was happening? Were the angels singing? I, you know, what's going on here? But it's very brief, as the Bible often is. Hmm. Where was he? He was in the vicinity of Bethany. You remember that little village of Bethany? It's on the, one of the slopes of the Mount of Olives. That's where he rose Lazarus from the dead and... Their friends, Mary and Martha. But it wasn't in Bethany, but on the, in the vicinity. And the Gospel of uh, Luke, the, uh, the, the, the rest of the story, the book of Acts, says that it was the Mount of Olives. If you've ever looked it up online, do so. Uh, when you get home, Mount, Google the Mount of Olives. It's an important place. It overlooks Jerusalem, and that's where Jesus was when he ascended into heaven. And the book of Acts tells us the two angels appeared and said, Hey guys, what you doing? Look up and up into the sky. The same Jesus who just went up is going to come down from heaven the same way. So how's Jesus coming back? On the clouds of heaven. Look, he's coming on the clouds and every eye will see him, it says in the Revelation. So as he went up, he will return. And we learn in the book of Zechariah, he will actually come down in the exact same place. That's interesting. Right there on the Mount of Olives, in Jerusalem, Jesus will land. <laughs> in fact, it says he'll split the mountain in half and he'll slay the wicked and rule and reign and begin the millennial kingdom. We will join him in our new glorified bodies for the millennial kingdom for a thousand years before a new heaven and a new earth. Notice as Jesus was going up into heaven, what was he doing? His hands were lifted up. Interesting. And he says he blessed them. Well, you know what? I think we actually know what the blessing was. Hmm. Let me share that with you. Because what he's doing here looks a lot like the Old Testament high priest. And the high priest over Israel, and we learn in the book of Hebrews that Jesus is our high priest. 
the only way to the Father. In Leviticus chapter 9, it says Aaron, the high priest, would lift up his hands, he would bless the people, and he would offer the sacrifice. Well, Jesus already offered the sacrifice. And now he's lifting up his hands and he's blessing the people. And what are the words that the, the high priest would, would utter? It comes from Numbers chapter 6. You might want to write it down. Numbers chapter 6, starting verse 24. This might be the very thing that Jesus said. If you picture him with his arms out and there he goes up into heaven as he gazes upon his disciples. And he would have said, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. <laughs> and that was it, right? The last glimpse of Jesus on earth before John and the Revelation, but that was a whole nother glimpse. Hmm. And I want us to point out here, I want, to, I, want to, I want us to understand that the last glimpse of Jesus was not his death and suffering on the cross. It's not a crucifix. That may have its place from time to time, but I love our crosses in the Protestant church because there's no body hanging on the cross. The last glimpse of Jesus is an empty cross, it's an empty grave, and it's the victorious, risen, glorified Savior, arms outstretched, ascending into heaven, blessing those who love him. What a picture, right? And then what's Jesus doing right now? He went into the right hand of the Father, and there it says he's interceding on our behalf. What does that mean? He's praying for you. He's praying for me. He's talking to God the Father about us, the kids in the kingdom. <laughs> and it also says he's preparing a place for us. He's working on a special house. It's called the New Jerusalem and a new universe. Oh, how God loves you and me. Beyond measure what he has in store for us. And he blessed the disciples as he went, and he blesses us now from heaven as he prays for us. Wow, what a savior. And one day he'll crack the, the sky and he'll come out of that other heavenly dimension and take us to be with him forever. Mm. And our final verses. Verse 52, then they worshiped him and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and they stayed continually at the temple praising God. The only response is blessing, right? Or is praise to his blessing, right? The only response is worship to the blessing of Jesus. So we should be a people of great joy, of worship, because he's blessing us today and he has blessed us. And he's ascended, but he's ever present. Father in heaven, we thank you, we thank you for your beloved Son, Jesus. No one like him. Magnificent and holy. Totally man, yet totally God. Our perfect sacrifice, our perfect Savior, risen from the dead in a glorified body, and one day we're going to be with you, Lord, in bodies similar to yours. 
Father, we thank you for the Bible, where faith comes from, that lets us see Jesus. We thank you for the Gospel of Luke and the, and the 89 messages. Thank you for those who have been here, for many of them, and some for just a few. But either way, Lord, we thank you for the Word of God. Tuck it into our hearts. Tuck it into our souls and minds, and we pray, Holy Spirit, you bring it forth as the need arises. Lord, we thank you that you have opened our eyes so that we can understand the scriptures. And we pray, Lord, for Red Bluff. We pray for our friends. We pray for our family members who do not have minds and hearts that understand the Bible. And we pray, Jesus, risen from the dead, that you would touch hearts and minds, God, and each family connected to this congregation. And minds would open. And they would start to understand Jesus and come forward in repentance and find forgiveness. Lord, we thank you that though in a body you're not here, you're here in each one by the power of your Holy Spirit. Help us to live in that power every day, Lord. Forgive us for the times we live in that weak state. And for anybody, Lord, that's doubting and struggling in their faith, help them just keep hanging out with you and you'll take care of it for them. We thank you for your blessings. We thank you that your face shines upon us and gives us peace. Lord, we say that we love you today. But we say we want to love you more. We want to love you better. So help us to just keep hanging out. That we might indeed... Be filled with the fullness of Christ. And thank you for eternity. Thank you that we will bask in the glory of God forever. So we give you our lives, our thoughts, our actions, our families, our futures. Have your way, O oh God. In Christ we pray. Amen.